Volume 2, Chapter 4 of the Heidenmauer, or the Benedictines, a legend of the Rhine, by James Fedimore Cooper. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Joel Kendrick. The Heidenmauer, by James Fedimore Cooper, Volume 2, Chapter 4. Mona, thy druid rites awake the dead, Rogers. Ulrich was in the habit of making frequent and earnest appeals to God, and she now prayed fervently where she knelt. Her attention was recalled to earth by a violent shaking of the shoulder. Ulrich, child! Frau Frey! exclaimed the assiduous Ilse. Art glued to the ground by necromancy? Where art thou here, and whither hath the holy man sped? Sawst thou Odo von Ritterstein? Whom? Art mad, Frau? I saw none but the blessed anchorite who passed me, and he were an angel taking wing for heaven. And though I knelt and beseeched but a look of grace, his soul was too much occupied with its mission to note a sinner. Had I been evil as some that might be named, this slight might give some alarm. But being that I am, I set it down rather to the account of merit than to that of any need. Nay, I saw naught but the hermit. Then didst thou see the unhappy Herr von Ritterstein. Ilse stood aghast. Have we harbored a wolf in sheep's clothing? She cried when the power of speech returned. Hath the Palatinate knelt and wept and prayed at the feet of a sinner like ourselves? Nay, even worse than ourselves after all. Hath what hath passed for true coin been naught but base metal? Our unction, hypocrisy, our hopes, wicked delusions, our holy pride, vanity? Thou sawest Odo von Ritterstein, Ilse, returned Ulrich rising, but thou sawest a devout man. Then giving her arm to the nurse, for of the two the attendant most required assistance, she took the way from the hut. While walking among the fallen walls of the deserted camp, Ulrich endeavored to bring her companion to consider the character and former sins of the anchorite with more lenity. The task was not easy, for Ilse had been accustomed to think the truant Odo altogether abandoned of God, and opinions that have been pertinaciously maintained for twenty years are not gotten rid of in a moment. Still, there is a process by which the human mind can be made to do more than justice when prejudice is finally eradicated. It is by this species of reaction that we see the same individuals now reprobated as monsters and now admired as heroes, the common sentiment as rarely doing strict justice in excessive applause as in excessive condemnation. We do not mean to say, however, that the sentiment of ill toward the anchorite underwent this violent revulsion from detestation to reverence. For the utmost that Ulrich could obtain in his favor was an admission that he was a sinner whose behalf on all devout Christians might without any manifest impropriety occasionally say an ave. This small concession of ill sufficiently favored the wishes of her mistress, which were to follow the hermit to the abbey church, to kneel at its altars, and to mingle her prayers with those of the penitent, on this the anniversary of his crime, for pardon and peace. We pretend not to show what court of human infirmity the wife of Heinrich Frey was led into the indulgence of a sympathy so delicate, with one to whom her hand had formerly been plighted. For we are not acting here in the capacity of censors of female propriety, but as those who endeavor to expose the workings of the heart, be they for good or be they for evil. It is sufficient for our object, that the result of the whole picture shall be a lesson favorable to virtue and truth. So soon as Ulrich found she could lead her companion in the way she wished, without incurring the risk of listening to stale morals, dealt out with a profuse garrulity, she took the path directly towards the convent. 
As the reader has most probably perused our introduction, there is no necessity of saying more than that Ulrich and her attendant proceeded by the route we ourselves took in going from one mountain to the other. But the progress of Ilse was far slower than that described as our own, in ascending to the Heidenmauer under the guidance of Christian Kinzel. The descent itself was long and slow, for one of her infirmities in years and the ascent far more tedious and painful. During the latter, even Ulrich was glad to halt often, to recover breath, though they went up by the horse-path over which they had ridden in the morning. The character of the night had not changed. The moon appeared to wade among fleecy clouds as before, and the light was misty but sufficient to render the path distinct. At this hour, the pile of the convent loomed against the sky with its dark Gothic walls and towers, resembling a work of giants in which those who had reared the structure were reposing from their labors, accustomed as she was to worship at its altars. Ulrich did not now approach the gate without a sentiment of admiration. She raised her eyes to the closed portal, to the long ranges of dark and sweeping walls, and everywhere she met evidences of midnight tranquility. There was a faint glow upon the side of the narrow giddy tower that contained the bells and which flanked the gate, and she knew that it came from a lamp that burnt before the image of the Virgin in the court. This gave no sign that the porter was awake. She stepped, however, to the wicket and rang the night bell. The grating of the bolts quickly announced the presence of one within. "'Who cometh to Limburg at this hour?' demanded the porter, holding the wicket chained as if distrusting treachery. "'A penitent to pray.' The tones of the voice assured the keeper of the gate, who had means also of examining the stranger with the eye, and he so far opened the wicket as to permit the form of Ulrich to be distinctly seen. It is not usual to admit thy sex within these holy walls, after the morning mass hath been said, and the confessionals are empty. There are occasions on which the rule may be broken, and the solemn ceremony of tonight is one. I know not that. Our reverend abbot is severe in the observance of all decencies. Nay, I am one closely allied to him in whose behalf this service is given, said Ulrich hastily. Repel me not for the love of God. Art thou of his kin and blood? Not of that tie, she answered in the checked manner of one who felt her own precipitation, but bound to his hopes by the near interest of affection and sympathy. She paused, for at that instant the form of the anchorite filled the space beside the porter. He had been kneeling by the image of a crucifix hard by, and had been called from his prayers by the soft appeal that betrayed Ulrich's interest in him, very tone of which went to his heart. "'She is mine,' he said authoritatively. "'She and her attendant are both mine. Let them enter.' Ulrich hesitated. She scarce knew why, and Ilse, wearied with her efforts and impatient to be at rest, was obliged to impel her forward. The hermit, as if suddenly recalled to the duty on which he had come to the convent, turned and glided away. The porter, who had received his instructions relative to him for whom the mass was to be said, offered no further obstacle, but permitted Ilse to conduct her mistress within. No sooner were the females in the court than he closed and barred the wicket. Ulrich hesitated no longer, though she trembled in every limb. Dragging the loitering Ilse after her, with difficulty she took the way directly towards the door of the chapel. With the exception of the porter at the wicket and the lamp before the virgin, all seemed as dim and still within as it had been without the abbey walls. Not even a sentinel of Duke Friedrich's men-at-arms was visible. But this occasioned no surprise, as these troops were known to keep as much aloof from the more religious part of the tenants of Limburg as was possible. The spacious buildings in the rear of the abbot's dwelling might well have lodged double their number, and in these it was probable they were now housed. As for the monks, the lateness of the hour, and the nature of the approaching service, fully accounted for their absence. 
The door of the Abbey Church was always open. This usage is nearly common to every Catholic place of worship in towns of any size, and it contains an affecting appeal to the passenger to remember the being in whose honor the temple has been raised. The custom is, in general, turned to account equally by the pious and the inquisitive, the amateur of the arts and the worshiper of God. And it is to be regretted that the former, more especially when they belong to a different persuasion or sect, should not oftener remember that their taste becomes bad when it is indulged at the expense of that reverence which should mark all the conduct of man in the immediate presence of his Creator. On the present occasion, however, there were none present to treat either the altar or its worship with levity. When Ulrich and Ilse entered the chapel, the candles of the great altar were lighted, and the lamps of the choir threw a gloomy illumination on its somber architecture. The fretted and painted vault above, the carved oak of the stalls, the images of the altar, and the grave and kneeling warriors in the stone that decorated the tombs stood out prominent in the relief of their own deep shadows. If it be desirable to quicken the devotion by physical auxiliaries, surely all that was necessary to reduce the mind to deep and contemplative awe existed here. The officials of the altar swept past the gorgeous and consecrated structure. In their robes of duty, grave, expectant monks were in their stalls, and Boniface himself sat on his throne, mitered and clad in vestments of embroidery. It is possible that an inquisitive and hostile eye might have detected in some weary countenance or heavy eyelid longings for the pillow and little sympathy in the offices, but there were others who entered on their duties with zeal and conviction. Among the last was Father Arnoff, whose pale features and thoughtful eye were seen in his stall, where he sat regarding the preparations with the tranquil patience of one accustomed to seek his happiness in the duties of his vow. To him might be put in contrast the unquiet organs and severe, rather than mortified, liniments of Father Johann, who glanced hurriedly from the altar and its rich decorations to the spot where the anchorite knelt, as if to calculate to what degree of humiliation and bitterness it were possible to reduce the bruised spirit of the penitent. Odo of Ritterstein, for there no longer remains a reason for refusing to the anchorite his proper appellation, had placed himself near the railing at the foot of the choir on his knees where he continued with his eyes fixed on the golden vessel that contained the consecrated host he had once outraged, the offense which he had now come as much as in him lay to expiate. The light fell but faintly on his form, but it served to render every furrow that grief and passion had drawn athwart his features more evident. Ulrich studied his countenance, seen as it was in circumstances of so little flattery, and trembling she knelt by the side of Ilse on the other side of the little gate that served to communicate between the body of the church and the choir. Just as she had assumed this posture, Gottlob stole from among the pillars and knelt in the distance, on the flags of the great aisle. He had come to the mass as a ceremony refused to none. So strong was the light around the altar, and so obscure the aisles below, that it was with difficulty Bonifacius could assure himself of the presence of him in whose behalf this office was had. But when, by contracting his heavy front so as to form a sort of screen of his shaggy brows, he was enabled to distinguish the form of Odo, he seemed satisfied, and motioned for the worship to proceed. There is little need to repeat the details of a ceremony it has been our office already to relate in these pages. But as the music and other services had place in the quiet and calm of midnight, they were doubly touching and solemn. There was the same power on the single voice as in the morning, 
or rather on the preceding day, for the turn of the night was now past, and the same startling effect was produced even on those who were accustomed to its thrilling and superhuman melody. As the mass proceeded, the groans of the anchorite became so audible that at times these throes of sorrow threatened to interrupt the ceremonies. The heart of Ulrich responded to each sigh that escaped the bosom of Odo, and ere the first prayers were ended, his face was bathed in tears. The examination of the different countenances of the Brotherhood during this scene would have been a study worthy of a deep inquirer into the varieties of human character or of those who love to trace the various forms in which the same causes work on different tempers. Each groan of the anchorite lighted the glowing features of Father Johann with a species of holy delight, as if he triumphed in the power of the offices, and at each minute his head was bent inquiringly in the direction of the railing, while his ear listened eagerly for the smallest sound that might favor his desires. On the other hand, the workings of the prior's features were those of sorrow and sympathy, Every sigh that reached him awakened a feeling of pity, blended with pious joy, it is true, but a pity that was deep, distinct, and human. Bonifacius listened like one in authority, coldly and with little concern in what passed, beyond that which was attached to a proper observance of the ritual, and from time to time he bent his head on his hand, while he evidently pondered on things that had little connection with what was passing before his eyes. Others of the fraternity manifested more or less of devotion according to their several characters, and a few found means to obtain portions of sleep as the rites admitted of the indulgence. In this manner did the community of Limburg pass the first hours of the day, or rather of the morning, that succeeded the Sabbath of this tale. It may have been afterwards source of consolation to those among them that were most zealous in the observance of their vows, that they were thus passed, for events were near that had lasting influence not only on their own destinies, but on those of the very region in which they dwelt. The strain of the last hymn were rising into the vault above the choir, when amid the calm that exquisite voice never failed to produce, there came a low rushing sound which might have been taken for the murmuring of wind, or for the suppressed hum of a hundred voices. When it was first heard, stealing among the ribbed arches of the chapel, the cowherd arose from his knees and disappeared in the gloomy depths of the church. The monks turned their heads as by a general impulse to listen, but the common action was as quickly succeeded by grave attention to the rites. Bonifacius indeed seemed uneasy, though it was like a man who scarce knew why. His gray eyes roamed over the body of darkness that reigned among the distant columns of the church, and then they settled with vacancy on the gorgeous vessels of the altar. The hymn continued, and its soothing power appeared to quiet every mind, when the sound of tumult at the great gate of the outer wall became too audible and distinct to admit of doubt. The whole brotherhood arose as a man, and the voice of the singer was mute. Ulrich clasped her hands in agony, while even Odo of Ritterstein forgot his grief in the rude nature of the interruption. End of Volume 2, Chapter 4 Read by Joel Kendrick